Yeah. Well, that's the beautiful thing. It's right. There's it's one creative writing nonprofit, but many paths to ending the world. All right. Welcome to Cognation. I'm your host, Rolf Nelson. And I'm Joe Hardy. And with us today, our guest is Chris Beatty. Uh, hi, Chris. Hi. 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 <laughs> Chris is the founder of National Novel Writing Month, and he is going to talk to us today a little bit about uh, some of the things he's been up to. And uh, also, we may get into uh, talking a bit about creativity. So, uh, Chris, uh, thanks a lot for joining us today. And what's on your mind? Um, what is on my mind? So, I, it's a great question. Thanks. I am currently between jobs. And, um, and so, my, uh, my, my kind of full time uh, effort right now is focused on trying to finish a long suffering novel draft that I've now been working on kind of piecemeal. Uh, for about eight years. And um, I have this really nice deadline, which is that I'm starting a new job on August 10th. And my goal is to have a final draft done by then. So I'm waking up early, trying to get as much time in as possible um, and trying not to panic and weep a lot, which uh, is, is difficult when when looking at the quality of this draft. Do you want to say anything about the, the book that you're working on right now? Or is this... Uh, top secret material. We can embargo the, the podcast, as they say in the business. <laughs> exactly. If you could avoid shipping this podcast until after my novel is sold, published, and has reached uh, kind of an Oprah level of fame, I think that would be great. Um, but I think the idea behind it, it's kind of a coming of age story um, that's kind of uh, funny and warm, set in a kind of post-apocalyptic America uh, with this uh, a group that has been kind of hiding in the mountains. And uh, one of the members of this group ends up going to Canada to kind of find find himself and start a new life. We love post-apocalyptic. That's one oh, of our good. favorite topics on the on the show. Well, there's a lot of it, and I'll sign both of you up for a pre-sale. It's $39.95, uh, and that comes with an autograph. It's a digital copy. The autograph is mostly imaginary, but it's a good deal. Can, cool. Now, what is our? if we were going to give a podcast discount, what would that podcast discount code be? Uh, that included the discount. That's that's it. Okay. That's the price. Do you want to talk a little bit about uh, National Novel Writing Month and maybe a little bit about how that came about? Yeah, absolutely. So it's this is a great uh, group to be telling the story with because uh, Rolf was there for the inception of all of it. And Joe, I feel like you were also kind of um, in and around this miasma of um, terrible first drafts that was emerging. <laughs> yeah, time. I remember. I didn't participate in that those first that first one, but I remember you guys doing it. Yeah, and, yeah. So I think the idea, Rolf, you can really fact check me here. Uh, started back in 1999, and I was in my mid twenties, and I think had a lot of energy and um, not a lot of um, familial responsibilities, and so I ha had always loved reading books and had grown up being a super avid reader. And I just kind of hit this moment when I was like, I really want to try writing a book. But I also knew myself well enough to know that um, typically it seemed like books took many years to write and that I didn't have the attention or follow through to actually pull that off. I was also very intimidated by the idea of writing a book, I think, because I had seen these authors that I'd admired growing up as these kind of these like Jedi otherworldly figures that right, that had some abilities or talents um, in, in world building and storytelling that I definitely knew I didn't. 
And so it was scary, but exciting. And I knew that um, in order for me to really like stick with it, if I could rope some friends into doing it with me, that we all would set this goal of writing a novel and that if we could make the deadline um, just like t super terrifying and very quick, I think it would <laughs> it would help me focus on it. And that's kind of how National Novel Writing Month was born. I sent out an email to a bunch of people, including Rolf, and um, said, hey, I, I want to tackle this challenge of writing a 175 page novel, which later became 50,000 words, which is like, that's kind of a short, shortish novel, like a catcher in the rye kind of length novel. Um, and we're going to do it in a month. The first year was in July and uh, 21 people, including myself, ended up signing on for that. And then um, we ended up having like such an unexpectedly good time and would get together. We kind of made it what I think writing, especially book writing is often a very solitary pursuit. And we made it like a kind of a social endeavor where we would get together and keep each other company while we wrote and we'd write for 40 minutes and then talk about how terrible our writing was for 20 minutes and then go back in and write for another 40 minutes. And there was something about that, like making writing a social activity that really unlocked a, this huge amount of potential, I think, in all of us. And we sort of discovered this fact that I think if you start writing and you keep writing, like pretty amazing things happen, surprising things happen, and the book often takes on this kind of life of its own and characters do things that you didn't know they were going to do. And it was just a pretty amazing experience. I think it was sort of like, it was just, it was almost like there was this part of our brains that we had been living alongside for our whole lives, but just really hadn't used much since childhood. When I think, you know, imaginative play is really just like a core part of what, that's like your job as a kid, right? Is to kind of imagine these worlds and have these action figures be talking to each other. And but at some point, I think around puberty, we get very embarrassed by having action figures that talk to each other. And so we stop, we just stop doing that. And I think this experience of like trying to fit this big sprawling world into this very small time frame kind of brought back that same spark of, of play and kind of turning off that, that self-critical voice that we bring to a lot of our adult endeavors, especially ones when we're not. Um, totally comfortable or feeling like we're in our element. And so I think that first year was just like, oh, wow, this was great. Um, six of us ended up crossing that 50,000 word finish line. And I think I realized like, okay, so if if we did this and had a good time, this is something that really like anybody can do and have a good time. And so I put up a website the next year and it grew from, a, from the 21 to 140 people. And then the year after that, it was 5,000 and then 14,000. And it just kept growing and growing in this really unexpected way um, since then. And now at this point, I think it's it's the world's largest creative undertaking. It produces um, over a billion words of fiction each year. 300,000 kids, teens, and adults do it. It's taught in thousands of schools um, around the world. Uh, there have been dozens of New York Times bestsellers that started out as National Novel Writing Month manuscripts. And um, it's really become this really interesting um, I think like a creative kick in the pants um, for people well, like me that maybe knew that they had always wanted to write a book, but just didn't quite know how to make time for it or how to get it done. And I think a deadline really helps with that. Not to mention the social pressure too, I think, or, you know, social support, I guess this was around the time, I don't, I'm trying to think if Friendster was even around then, but this is in pre-social media days. and having someone to uh, take a laptop with and go work at a coffee store and, and just a lot of people being aware uh, of the fact that you're writing a book, sort of encouraging you to do that. I think, you know, that's uh, 
sort of standard behaviorist ways of, of encouraging <laughs> something to happen, right? Yeah. And I think it really gets to this idea of like, I think different personality types really respond well to different um, encouragements. You know, some people need carrots, some people need sticks, some people don't need any carrots or sticks to get things done. And I think for those of us that that tend to prioritize the things in life that other people ask us to do as compared to the things that just we personally want to do, but that there's no real nobody's going to be there to say, hey, where's that novel, right? Or nobody's going to be upset if we don't write that novel. And I think there's something about, Rolf, like you said, this idea that, oh, well, you know, there are dozens of people out there that I've now told I'm taking part in <laughs> this ridiculous challenge. And I've, I've told them that I'm going to have a novel by the end of the month. And I don't, I, you know, I, I don't want to let them down. I want to be able to say, okay, yeah, I did it. And there's something really powerful in that. Yeah, that's really cool. I mean, I was struck by you mentioned that there are dozens of New York Times bestsellers that came out of this process. I mean, do you how many of those books do you think just would never have been born if not for this, you know, this incentive? Uh, it's it's hard because really one of the things that the lessons that I think you learned from taking part in National Novel Writing Month is that writing the first draft, especially it's 50,000 words, is really just the start of such an epic journey. And you have to have so much discipline and follow through and focus um, to really get that thing to the point of publication. So I'm going to guess that the people that really did that, that, that walked that road, probably would have done some version of it anyway. But I doubt it would have been that exact book. Uh, and you know, one of the interesting things is National Novel Writing Month grew. It really started out as this kind of fringe, quirky internet thing. And that was kind of what a lot of the early, when it would get covered by newspapers or TV, it was kind of like, look at these wacky internet people writing novels in a month. And, uh, but over time it really became a kind of more, uh, valued and respected part of a writing community and a writing process. And I think a lot of these successful writers that already had book contracts and agents would use national novel writing month just to help them move along and get unstuck from their own you know, it's, I think, really easy to get in your own head when you're writing and you start evaluating the quality of every sentence or every word. Um, and I think there was something liberating about this idea of a, a month of pure output. So we started seeing more and more respected writers kind of writing these really nice essays saying that this is great, that this is helpful, that this is not, um, this is not, I think, as some people had kind of posited, this is not like mocking literature or devaluing the written word. But in fact, it's the opposite. It's helping give people um, a little bit of encouragement and, and a voice that they maybe wouldn't have had on their own. Before the show, we were talking a little bit about creativity and like what the nature of creativity is. And if someone's good at one thing, are they good at another thing? Do you think that in, in this process that there are some people who are just good writers naturally, or is it something that is learned or how, how do you think about that in your experiences with this? Yeah, I so I teach a, a NaNoWriMo class uh, through Stanford's Continuing Studies program once a year, usually in the fall. And, um, you know, I definitely get that question a lot from people that say, I don't even know if I should be in this class. I don't I, I don't see myself as a writer. I love the idea of this challenge. I love the, the idea of creating a novel, but I don't I'm not a, a writer. And I think that notion of like, who is who is a writer? who deserves to call themselves a writer is, is such a challenging one. And I wish that it were not, um, it, it's, a, I think, a source of kind of stress for a lot of people, including me. I mean, even as somebody who's been writing professionally for a long time, 
there's something that I, it feels very nerve wracking to stand up and say, I'm a writer in the same way that you might say I'm an artist. Um, but I think that's, I, to me, that the revelation of National Novel Writing Month was that just that writing feels good. Even if the quality of the writing itself is bad, there's just something about stepping into this world that we have made with our own imagination and kind of seeing what unfolds that day as you kind of move your character across the page. Um, and that feels good ultimately whether you think this book is publishable or whether you feel like you will become a professional uh, or not. I think for everybody, just the the act of creative play is kind of sustaining and enriching and rewarding. I know I'm in a better mood when I've had some amount of kind of like creative workout in the same way that I think a lot of people feel better when they've gone running or played some basketball or something like that. But I think when there is this bigger question, which is just like, okay, so every year, something like 30,000 people write the 50,000 words. So we have, you know, 30,000 winners every year. Um, of those very few may turn that into a publishable draft. And what is the difference between somebody who sets out to do that and ultimately, you know, sells it to a New York publishing house versus somebody that, that doesn't? And are there other equally valid paths along that way? So self-publishing is a really, obviously a, a huge one and has become an ever bigger part of the nano, what happens after NaNoWriMo. You know, there are probably now tens of thousands of self-published novels out there uh, that started as National Novel Writing Month novels. And I do think that like, um, I think some people in my experience have an innate gift for like wordsmithing. I think that you, you can read their sentences and you're just, you know, you just, it's like your jaw just drops where you're like, how do they do that? How, you know, how, how do they, how did they get such a, a perfect description of this person's, the way they look or how do they just kind of like drift inside of this person's thoughts and capture an entire worldview? Um, I, I think that there are some people that just have that aptitude in the same way that there are people who are just really good cellists, you know, or who can speak 17 foreign languages and they don't really think about it. Um, but I do think that to me, the act of writing is, is it benefits everybody. Everybody feels better when, when they do it. And so I think that's kind of my sidestepping answer to that bigger question of like, can everybody be a great writer? Can I ask you guys a question? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So here's something that I, so I think a lot about um, apocalypse skills, right? Where I, I think about, okay, so the, the world falls into ruin. What can I offer to like in exchange for food? What skill could I bring to the table? And I think about like friends who are just like really, have this knack for like fixing things or building things or tinkering with engines, like to them, mechanics and mechanical things just like make sense to them. They, they don't make sense to me. And I just feel like writing is going to like my, my ability to make like a really good sign for somebody is, is not going to get me or my family very much in the apocalypse. And I think that that, that notion of having like having certain, uh, skills or abilities that are in these like very practical domains has always been really interesting to me because I don't have them. And so my question, I think to you both is like, are, are people, let's say somebody that's just like really good at working on engines, the engines have always made sense to them. Were they born with something different in their brains? Well, I definitely think it's the case that, you know, there are different types of innate abilities that people have in the sense that, or actually I don't, that's not the right term innate capacities. So I, I think about it from the perspective of like, in the case of cognition, which is really, you know, my expertise and, and Rolf's expertise as well, you know, 
we talk about cognitive abilities and we've done a lot of work on this in different ways, analyzing people's cognitive abilities and also their ability to improve on those abilities. And it's definitely the case that people can improve on cognitive abilities. Any ability that you have that requires you to process information, those are all things that you can improve on, but they're also limited to some extent or bounded to some extent by uh, innate capacities. You know, in addition to that, that you have the thing of what people did when they were young, because before you're, you know, in the critical period of development, your brain is much more plastic and able to, you know, adapt and evolve and change. So things that you learned when you were young, uh, especially if they have to do with language uh, or music or these sorts of abilities like that, tend to be things you're going to be much better if you if you learn them when you were young than if you try to learn them for the first time when you're older. And some things you will just never be able to learn. So, for example, you know if you've, uh, you know if you're learning a certain type of language, you might lose the ability to hear uh, certain phonemes or sounds in, the, in a different language that aren't that don't exist in your language uh, after a certain age, maybe you know eight or nine years old. And so, you know, some of these things are just you know a function of that. Some of them are a function of you know people are just different genetically as well, you know, but at the same time, there's so much you can learn. And I think so from that perspective, you know, I I don't know that it's hard to say that engines would be something that anyone would necessarily innately be good at, because that's something you have to learn. You have to learn how they work or else you won't be able to engage with them. So it's probably some combination of, you know, innate capacity, uh, propensity, right? So like interest in something being, being oriented towards it. And then, you know, learning at an early age and then getting feedback. I think the other part, the thing that was striking me as, as you were talking, Chris, was like the idea of like the social feedback part is so important. I mean, you were talking about it in the, in the local sense of like your friends were around and hanging out and, and writing. But it's also like to me is like a big difference between writing to be read, writing for yourself. And then if you're writing to be read, are you writing for a large audience? Or are you writing for a specific audience? And what kind of writing is that? You know, there's very different types of writing depending on who your audience is. You know, if it's like a technical writing, you know, for example, you know, in uh, writing a journal article, I got, became pretty good at that. You know, and I felt quite confident in my ability to, to convey information in, in like you know, a scientific journal in that form. Uh, but I don't know that that translates or I feel like it would not translate to writing a novel, for, for example. It's interesting, though, that that notion of early praise being key in developing these skills. And I think you're right that probably everybody that is gifted at, at something, and I think everybody is gifted, uniquely gifted at, at something, usually some things, um, th- there was probably a moment when they wielded that thing or tried that thing while other people were watching. And, mm-hmm. they, and they got that moment of like, whoa, wow. You know, I feel that having a five-year-old son where, you know, it's like we're playing this board game labyrinth where you kind of move pieces around on this maze and create these paths. And he's just, he, he's like really good at it. And I think he's better at it in some ways than I am. And I think that, you know, and I just, I keep saying, you're so good at this, Henry. And I think those moments do kind of start to solidify these things of like, oh, this is, this is what I'm good at. And I'm not getting praise at this other thing. And I wonder how much of an outsized effect that the noticing, the kind of public acknowledgement of these uh, achievements has on kind of altering the trajectory of what people end up getting into and spending time doing. 
Well, I think people, I mean, obviously it's going to be somewhat complicated because you can, you can certainly be interested in things that you're not necessarily great at. Um, and I, I guess I think of myself a little bit too. When I was a kid, I was really interested in motors and tinkering and a lot of that stuff. And I wasn't, I wasn't really great at it, but I just had a real interest in it. And then a few years ago, I kind of took this stuff up more and just, I like learning about it. And I like, um, I mean, my interest is there, but I don't necessarily have, I'm never going to be a superstar at it. So it's always going to be a kind of a hobby. I think I could relate this back to one of our previous episodes too, because I think um, we can link some of this interest and in learning stuff up with um, dopamine. So we talk about on the show that Michael Frank was on, we talked about uh, dopamine being uh, something that's used for reinforcement, something that um, causes people to want to repeat a behavior again. So when you're when you're getting uh, that jolt of dopamine, you want to you want to perform something again. You're enjoying it. it. You're having a good time doing it. So if you're playing guitar, you're enjoying it in the moment, and um, you want to keep repeating it. So the more you practice, the better you're going to get at it. Um, and likewise with novel writing too. I'm sure that some people may want to write a novel because they want to be famous, but they don't necessarily like sitting down and typing and you know actually writing the words and going through some of the more painful parts of the process. So I think where your interest lies is you, you, someone who wants to be a great writer without wanting to put the work in, of course, is not going to be a great writer because their you know, real interest is not in that you know, the, the process of writing, I guess. And you were talking, I mean, yeah. what you're talking about, Chris, is the, the real enjoyment of the actual process of writing, not, not, you know, thinking of yourself as a famous author or anything like that, but just purely getting into right. the flow or the creative moment. Yeah, I think it's, it gets down to this question of intrinsic versus extrinsic motivation. Um, I have a friend, um, Tom Manarelli, who's an uh, organizational psychologist, he teaches um, at INSEAD, and he did his PhD dissertation. He was a, was and still is a huge music nerd. And so he looked at all these musical artists and kind of talked about them on the spectrum of kind of innovation um, and really found that, that those that were the most innovative that really changed the nature of what we thought of as songwriting or songcraft um, were all really fueled by intrinsic motivation and didn't really talk about these external rewards. But I, I have a question, which is, you know, I think sometimes when we, when we do have a kind of a natural or innate uh, ability or aptitude at something, I think we sometimes undervalue it because it feels like it comes easy to us. And I think as a result, sometimes people don't, you know, it's like somebody may have a real gift for art, but they're like, oh, whatever. It's just, I can, I can draw. That's something I always did. And, and so they don't end up kind of developing it because they don't see it as special or unique. Do you find that to be the case in your own lives? Like, are there certain things that you feel good at, but that you're just, you're like, eh, I'm good at it. Then, eh, not all that interested. Well, I was struggling to make, I, I was thinking about this idea the other day that everybody has a talent or everybody's good at something. And I was kind of wondering that because I'm not really sure that I am good at anything. Or like exceptional or, you know, really good at something. I, I think you're, I mean, you're a really good scientist, a really good professor. I'm sure I haven't taken your classes, but I've, I've TA'd with you and I know that you're a good teacher. Well, uh, but I mean, I, I guess I, I want to be an exec, you know, I want to be able to juggle 
40 things at a time. And, you know, I guess I think of, maybe I think of it as sort of a talent show kind of, um, right. A talent show type talent. Yeah. Like what, what would you like do if you had to be on like a talent show and, and do something to entertain people? I think this gets to this question of like, again, it, it's like, who is it for? I think this is like so central to this whole conversation, I think. And it gets back to the idea, my my central hypothesis around like, what is an intelligence or what is an ability, which is like, it's all about what are your goals? You have to always evaluate everything in terms of your goals. Because it, it, Rolf, you're getting at the idea of like, what is someone's motivation? And that's a big part of it. I think that relates back to like this idea of what, what are you trying to achieve? Like, what are your goals? Because... I think if you can evaluate what your goals are, what you're trying to get out of it, then I think you'll, it's a lot easier to understand like how good or how good you could be at something. That's a great way to right? frame like, it. So, so how would you, how would you think about a goal as an author, Chris? So what would you, how would you describe what people are, what people would be satisfied with if they were doing it right? Well, I think that really varies by person. And I do think if people are being honest, they do want to be widely read. They want their book to be successful. I think um, people, including me, would say, well, as long as I could find 12 people who really <laughs> love this book and really get it and it really means something, then then that's success. Or, you know, I, the thing I tell myself constantly is I just need to finish this. I'm really I struggle a lot with finishing novels for these big projects I've started, I mean, literally like 16, 17 of them. And I just haven't really gotten to the point where I feel like any of them are really done. And I think that to me is a marker of success is just feeling like this is done. The truth is, I don't think I'll ever feel it's done. I have a kind of perfectionistic streak and I, I'm always going to be very self-critical about the quality of it. So I don't know. That's a, it's a good question. Um, but Rolf, can we get back to you feeling like you're not exceptional at anything? Well, <laughs> I, want, I just maybe I am thinking in, of it in more of a sort of show off, like something I can show off. Like uh, I, I just don't have that. I mean, my voice is pretty off pitch. You have it. You've heard me sing in rock star. Probably it's pretty. You, yeah. It's pretty awful. I think. But here's something that I will say. I think that's a very constrained definition of talent. The talent show definition of talent, because I think a lot of people's skills, including something like writing, nobody's going to watch want to watch somebody like write a paragraph on stage, right? But somebody may be very gifted at that. And I think Rolf, one of the things I will say about you is also, I think you have an amazing sense of humor, and I think that that is a it's a rare gift that you probably don't think about a lot, but I think is is very much a part of who you are. This kind of exceptional ability to kind of offer this a, a deadpan assessment or, or some sort of uh, just a, a funny quip. Um, and that's a skill that I think probably got nurtured over time. And people probably told you when you were in high school, oh, you're Rolf, he's really funny. Um, but I think it's interesting. One one I, question I guess I think I, I did so far... just, uh, just yeah. in yeah. high school, I think I was named wackiest slash dizziest, if that counts for anything. See, <laughs> I knew it. That's not, neither of those things are, are really about humor. They seem to be about more about brain impairment. But <laughs> exactly. I do think that, what, do you think that w when we think about this idea of um, aptitudes, how far away are we from an aptitude map? Like an ability, in the same way we sequence a genome, we could sequence uh, somebody's potential abilities in foreign language, music, art, um, mechanics, spatial reasoning, like how far away are we from getting a printout of that? Well, you know, it's, it's, it's really, we're not that close. I mean, we're farther away than I wish we were. I, I spent, a, I spent a way too much time 
working on this problem and thinking about this problem. And ultimately, I don't want to say I gave up, but I, I decided to work on other things. Uh, <laughs> so I, I think I think we really, really did feel like we had taken it as far as we could take it, uh, given the, the, the tools and, and what we had uh, to work with at the moment. Uh, technology will help, and especially with uh, brain imaging, so mapping brain imaging, uh, understanding of uh, underlying neural processes to uh, to act, you know behavior will help. But where where things have gotten constrained, and there's a lot of debate and a lot of literature written on this topic, a ton, and it's it's gotten become extremely contentious, and that's part of why I decided to move on to other things. But uh, you know, the issue is again, it's around assessment. Because how do you decide if somebody is good at something becomes the fundamental thing. So for that's why I mentioned, it, you know, our sort of pre, prelim conversation was this idea of testing. So if you take an intelligence test, this is where a lot of this research comes out of is like the intelligence and aptitude testing. So you can think of this as a continuum from like, you know, early 1900s and Binet, you know, on to, you know, Stanford Binet on into like, you know, the SAT today. Uh, and like this whole range of trying to get a sense of by taking a test, is someone going to be able to do something that you want them to do? And it turns out that like when it comes to things like school and work, when, where work is like white collar work and, you know, desk job nowadays in front of a screen most of the time, it actually works really well. Like you, you give someone a test, it almost doesn't matter what the test is. It almost doesn't even matter. Uh, there are so many tests that are predictive because they all sort of load on this this overall like factor, which is called G, which is like this, what's referred to as general intelligence, which I think is incorrectly referred to as general intelligence. I think it's just a statistical anomaly of the way that tests work. But that's like a whole nother show. But, but the idea is that like people who are good at taking a, a test in one area, like say, for example, vocabulary tend to be good at taking a, a, like, for example, memorizing a set of digits. Uh, and there are a lot of reasons why that might be. But I think a lot of them have to do with just this thing of being good at taking a test right. and a certain kind of test. So it really gets back. That's why I, that's why I've brought up this issue of goals. Like you got at this idea of like wordsmithing. And I think this is a great example. Is someone a good writer if they are a good wordsmith or are they a good writer if they can tell a good story? And what is the yeah. relationship between those two things and which is more important? Yeah. It really depends on your goals, right? Yeah, it tends to be that they go together, but not always. And you have see you see people who are really good storytellers, but aren't necessarily their their sentence structure is sort of basic or 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 otherwise you know not not very or overly wrought, you know, and and vice versa. You have people who can you know produce good copy, but aren't necessarily storytellers. And I think to achieve something in the world, it takes a combination of you know uh, you know capacity. And that ability, which comes from from work and the practice, and then also propensity. So just an orientation towards doing something, wanting to do it, actually spending time, whether you want to do it or not do it. Um, yeah. All of those things, you know, will determine whether someone's successful at doing something. And I think it's, you know, we 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 make a lot of these these aptitude tests uh, because they're predictive. But the reasons why they're predictive are not the reasons why why we would want them to be predictive. So for example, socioeconomic status, yep. you know, a certain, a certain uh, upbringing, a, a, an orientation towards the culture, what's expected of you when someone asks you a question, how is that question supposed to be answered? 
those are the kinds of things that tend to that I believe really are most predictive about why people are good at taking tests. Yeah. So, yeah. You, yeah. You've made this woefully uh, and rightfully complicated, Joe. I just really wanted to print out, and it sounds like you have now problematized this in seven thousand different smart ways. <laughs> that yeah. It, I mean, even when you think about artistic ability, where it's like. Okay, so is that are you asking somebody to look at a picture of a horse and draw a horse? Is that is that artistic ability or is it somebody that can have has a kind of like Picasso-esque ability to look beyond the horse and and draw the horse's essence? And who's to say which one is is more of an artistic achievement? And okay, shoot. All right. Well, yeah. And then if you think think about this, for example, yeah, I, mean, I, I really think we should come back to the narrative thing because I think that's like an interesting topic in of itself, ability to tell a story. Because I was thinking about this as you were talking, Chris, it's like, sounds like you're, you're also very just good at telling stories. And I think that's probably a lot of where the, you know, the writing comes in there. And that's a, that's a framework for which, from which you can tell stories. Um, so that's, that's part of it. But, you know, this idea of like, you know, for example, in musicianship, you know, like, I, I listen to a lot of, uh, I, I'm a big Grateful Dead fan. So I listen to a lot of different cover bands as a consequence of that, because the Grateful Dead, they're no longer around per se, but there are a lot of different bands that play their music. And some of these play these musicians play the licks and the, you know, the jams and, and actually sing just as well or better than Jerry Garcia did. Right. But Jerry Garcia, no one would say that these are better musicians than Jerry Garcia. Something about the putting together like the playing for an audience, the, the, the doing something to, to be heard, you know, and then being successful at that is itself, I think, a skill. Yeah. Oh, this is, this is so, it's so interesting, but also so frustrating that it doesn't lend itself to the same level of um, genome sequencing or something where you're just like, well, it's just going to be one of four things and it's a series of, of numbers <laughs> and, um, but maybe it's kind of great too, because in essence, it, it, you know, you're talking a lot about magic, right? That there was something about Jerry Garcia that was just magical. And he yeah. was able to put these things together in a way that would be impossible to test for. It would be meaningless to test for. It's not quantifiable. It's just something you feel. And that's pretty awesome. Like that, I think is, that gets into this kind of higher level question of, of making art that moves people, that makes them feel something that um, kind of changes the way they see their potential that makes them feel alive in these new ways. And that's pretty awesome. And I think um, maybe that's my apocalypse skill is like, hey, um, the government has collapsed. You're feeling bad, but I'm going to I'm going to make you uh, I'm going to tell you a funny story. And then I will get this kind of rotten pear that you have been holding on to. And I think that's how <laughs> that sounds good. Stories for pears. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh. Maybe we should take a little break here. Sounds, Sounds great. great. So welcome back. And again, our guest today is Chris Beatty, who founded National Novel Writing Month. And one of the things that I, I had mentioned to you just as a, as a topic for the show and something that maybe was of interest is um, the, idea of, the idea of thinking of life as a collection of stories. So this came about because of uh, 
It was an essay by Galen Strawson, the philosopher, in a book uh, called Things That Bother Me. And one of the things that he didn't feel as strongly as other people, I think, was, was this idea that what we are is a collection of narratives or a collection of stories and that life feels like a story as it's lived, that we're sort of working our way through this arc of life. And I'll just read some of the, I'll just read the first bit uh, so that I can clarify what it is that he's talking about. Um, and maybe some of these will make sense to you. Uh, so here are some claims I don't believe. So again, this is a list of things that this is a list of things that he is not supporting. Here are some claims I don't believe. We are all storytellers, and we are the stories we tell. We invent ourselves, but we really are the characters we invent. We make sense of our lives by turning them into stories. We constitute our souls by making up our lives, that is, by weaving stories about our past. And this one, what we call my life is but a constantly rewritten version of, of our own past. My life is the mental autobiography with which and by which we all live. What really happened is quite another matter, etc. And then he, and then he um, you know, gives some other examples of this. So in Galen Strawson's view, life doesn't feel like a story or a narrative. So he, f he finds that you know, waking up in the morning, it feels like it's just another random uh, sort of chaotic world out there, and it's not headed towards any particular trajectory. Uh, and he, he also, I think one of the interesting things about this is he, he sees this as a little bit of a personality feature, that some people might be more inclined to think of life as a narrative that, you know, that they fit within. And some people don't feel that way at all. They they mostly live in the present moment. They don't think about, you know, their story and where they should fit in. Um, life just sort of happens to them, and it's not part of a larger structure. So anyways, this in mind, um, I wonder, Chris, if you've thought at all about or had any skepticism about the idea that um, you know, where we are the stories that we tell or that life feels like a, a narrative that's being lived in a certain kind of a sequence. And and here, I'll give it to you and see if you have any thoughts about this. Yeah, I do. It's interesting that he says he doesn't believe that. So his point is that he's saying life then is, at least to him, just a, a semi-random sequence of events. There's not really a lot of dot connecting that's happening for him and that he feels pretty good with that or what What was his... That it's not like that life isn't like a... It just isn't experienced like that for him, that he doesn't... He doesn't... He doesn't... It doesn't yeah. resonate with him. I think, you know, true. I think a lot about stories and story structure. I think... So part of my class, this national novel writing with class that I teach... Um, we have five weeks before people start writing their month-long novels. And so we spend about a week and a half on, on traditional classic story structure, which is often like movie story structure, right? Where you sort of start with a, a person in their everyday life, something is missing, they're probably not exactly sure what it is. Then suddenly an opportunity or a challenge presents itself. Uh, they often kind of resist that. This is also often called the hero's journey. Exactly. Something happens, they're pulled in, they're yeah, immediately over like their head, Joseph there's a series Campbell of ups and downs, stuff. they make new friends along the journey. Um, 
And it's fun teaching that because when you kind of lay it out on a grid and you show people, okay, exactly two thirds of the way through most books and two thirds of the way, probably through all major Hollywood screenplays, the hero is at their lowest point. The cavalry is not going to come. They're either close to death or some kind of uh, metaphorical version of death. And then of course they rally and they may not win, but in the end, whatever they get, um, it is often the thing that was missing from their lives. So it may not be the pot of gold or the million dollars, but it's it's the friendship that they needed or a relationship with a family member. And you kind of walk people through that and they're just, there's the this kind of like a gasp that happens because we've watched so many of these stories unfold without really recognizing mm-hmm. yeah. what's going on with them. And I think when people write books and novels, there's something so satisfying about kind of knowing that there is this, there's an innate structure that people tend to respond to where there are setbacks and then there are successes followed by more setbacks. And I wonder when we talk about people being good storytellers or making sense of their life through stories, if those are the people that are able to kind of map, kind of realign the events of their life to fit a traditional story structure, right? A more Hollywood version of that. And I did that with that NaNoWriMo story without even thinking about it, where it was kind of like, you know, we had this goal, it was kind of crazy. We, we had some setbacks, some successes. And um, I do, I'm, I'm curious about that. I definitely do think that s- people have a story about themselves. And at some of it well, goes- what do you, what do you, well, let me ask you personally, do you feel, does it feel like uh, life is experienced or lived like a story? Does it feel like you're in a certain part of the arc of your life? Or does it feel like... Yes. Yeah. And and you does. you know you have a clear sense of what happened before and it's following a trajectory that you know how it's going to well not necessarily that you know how it's going to play out but it you know you have an expectation about how things will go in general. I don't know about the future, but I think from now backwards, I think that we retell our story enough times as we meet new people and they ask, "Oh, how did you get into the field or um how did you end up moving to Rhode Island?" And in the version of that story that you tell now, Rolf, is probably pretty honed. The how did you move to Rhode Island story? And I think that you've you've omitted a lot of details. You've moved certain key facts out of the story entirely. And you've created this like pretty clean narrative. And I think that those things, we tend to retell those key things about ourselves so many times um, that I, 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 I think you can't help but become the story that you're telling because you, you start to see yourself in that same narrative, even though that's really just a shorthand, I think. Well, what do you guys think? I'm curious. Well, I, th- I mean, I, th- I think I see both sides of this because I would say that if you do start to see yourself as just the, the narrative that you've explained to other people over and over again, I mean, that seems like a pretty shallow um, description of yourself, right? And I'm sure there's there's always a lot more complexity and, and um, a lot more depth to people than than we could imagine in a narrative like that. Um, and I mean, yeah, we can we can tell the story of our life and we can imagine our earlier life like that. But I guess maybe for some people, it doesn't feel as much as though they're, they're sort of on the rails of this, of this story. And, and it might be a, a little bit, it might be experienced just in a, in a variety of ways. Yeah, I, I definitely feel I, I, that narrative structure and storytelling to myself is something that I have, you know, that is, is it's it's very present with me. It's something that that happened that I do a lot. I spend a lot of time 
thinking about my story and where I am in my story and how it relates to the timeline of my life and so on and so forth. Well, I'd um, like to hear that, Joe. So what is the, what is the re- remaining arc? Well, the, yeah, the future again is, is hard to, uh, always in motion, always in motion, the future is, <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, no, the, uh, I definitely have had the sense and Ralph, you and I've talked about this a little bit. That, that right now is, is that two-thirds mark, <laughs> the low point in some ways. In some ways, like, there's a lot of good stuff going on as well. But, uh, I mean... It, well, here right, is I mean, the only... The two-thirds... Wait, two-thirds mark? Yeah. Of our life? Well, the, yeah, I mean, in, in, in no, the No, no, no. Okay, the only... In, in the I mean, the only... The only narrative part of my life that I would sense strongly is that I'm... I'm planning on living to 140. Okay. So, but see, that's the thing. I, I do don't have an, they, I do have a current state and an end state. Right. The, the, the thing about the storyline, though, is that, and this is totally true, right? Uh, is that like most stories of a life are heavily weighted towards the beginning. So, like two thirds of the book is not going to be too. You know, you're not going to have to be. Uh, what what is that like? You know, eighty some odd years old to be two thirds of the way through your 140 year life in, in the book, in the narrative. Mm. You just need to be at that, at the nadir. So you feel as though your life is a narrative and it feels like you're smack in the middle of that narrative. Yes. Chris, you feel I, as though your life is a narrative. I think it's like a series of contextual narratives, right? So there's like the work narrative, there's the family narrative, there's the like personal creative journey narrative. I think all of those have different stories. They're not kind of nicely packaged together into one story of Chris. Yeah, that resonates with me as well. I I, I definitely feel that. I, I, I sent like the narrative that I, that I really feel that I, that I, that I think of the most as like being, a story that I've told a lot and that I think about a lot is the, is the work productivity narrative. That's the one that is sort of most present for me. Um, the other stuff is more like a series of smaller stories more. So like the other, that would be like one, that would be like the most, you know, it would be told in like a book form. And then I think my, my relationships and, and my other uh, pieces are more like, would be like more, more stories that are kind of overlapping and, you know, maybe different episodes that are that are interrelated in that way. Yeah, Rolf, what do you what's your what's your take? What's the I story think, of Rolf? I think that I think that having a particular story is constraining. I don't think you should have a I don't think you should have a narrative because once you buy into a set um, personality or a set sort of set traits or habits or ideals or goals I think it offers you less flexibility towards what you want to do in the future. I, yeah. So I, I say, um, I don't, I don't feel as though I experience it as much. I mean, I, everybody, you know, part of life certainly is experiences narrative, but I would say that, you know, day to day, I don't, you know, I don't get a sense that it's just another, it's part of this continuous line from, you know, my birth until my death and I'm, I'm at a certain point of it. That's not, that's not what's in the forefront of my mind most of the time. 
Right. Yeah. Well, there's a, there's an interesting thing that this is making me think of, which is like moments where your story gets disrupted, right? And those tend to be like I think of National Novel Writing Month participation yeah. to be is often one of those moments for people who either didn't see themselves as a writer, didn't see themselves as creative, didn't see themselves as capable of following through on this project, and then they do it. And sometimes they're surrounded by people in their lives who actively are telling them that story. You know, oh yeah, you start so many things, you never finish them. Um, and I think when you actually set this really ambitious goal, again, that could be writing, it could be writing a marathon, could be anything, and you achieve it unexpectedly, you have this level of success. I think that does force you to start asking these other questions. And this is something that I know I did after National Novel Writing Month, the first one, and I think a lot of people do, which is like, okay, if, if it turns out I'm capable of writing a reasonably okay first draft of a book in 30 days, like what else can I do? And for National Novel Writing with participants, oftentimes they, they never go back and look at that book, but that starts this kind of open question of them wanting to look at that business that they always wanted to start, but never did, or go back to taking viol like violin lessons. And so many people end up coming out of that experience, I think, with their story of themselves broken in some way. That's a great, um, yeah. Do you have any other examples or, or are there any particular ones that come to mind? Because, I mean, this also goes along with our talk of transfer of, you know, creativity and, uh, you know, skills that you might, if you, if you're, if you're good at one thing, you might apply your skills towards another thing too. So, um, what kinds of things have people turned their lives to after doing NaNoWriMo? Yeah, it does. I mean, I think some of them are creative pursuits where people, um, decide that they do want to go back and get a, maybe a college degree. Some, for some people, it's a, an MFA in writing. But I think for other people, it's just that they, they, they see themselves in a different and more capable way. I had one really kind of heartbreaking, but also really uh, happy making conversation when I was, um, I went to Fort Collins, Colorado and um, talked at a library there. And there's a big uh, contingent of National Novel Writing with participants in Fort Collins. And this woman came up to me afterwards and she just said, I just want to thank you for National Novel Writing Month. And she said, I um, was in a really abusive marriage and my husband said I wasn't capable of anything. I could never do anything. I wasn't worth anything. And I had always wanted to write a book. And so I found your website. I signed up and I didn't tell him that I was doing this. And every night I would write. And over the month, I wrote a novel. And uh, at the end of that, that showed me that I was something I, I could do something. I could make something. I could be something. And that was the impetus for her to get out of that marriage. She divorced him and now she's living on her own. She's happy. She does National Novel Writing Month every year. And I think that that change, it really does, like, I think the story of her life that she had probably told herself was a pretty negative one, you know, and it was one that involved a lot of probably putting up with this terrible, inexcusable behavior from a husband. And I think at a certain point when that's, you see a different possibility or potential for yourself, I think that that is pretty powerful. But I would guess that, a, that it was a story that had kept her in that marriage, but it was a story that also got her out of it. That's great. Yeah, no, that is that is really good. You know, the it kind of makes me think, Rolf, I think what your your critique of, of, this, of the narrative maybe relates to this idea, something that Alison Gopnik actually talked about when we were in graduate school. Um, what, we had we had those um, for the different professors would come through. This is when we were in graduate school for psychology. 
the different professors would come through and tell their little stories about how they became professors. And, you know, with the idea of trying to help you understand the paths that people have taken to become academics or whatever. Uh, and what she said was that, you know, the story that, that she's telling is just that. It's just a story. It's like it's a convenient package. And that the actual, the, the narrative itself that is attached to her actual life is itself not the same thing as her life, right? It's it's a way of making meaning and sense of of her life, but it's not her life. It's different. Yeah, I think that's really good. And I think maybe for me, the key would be to not be fooled too much by that narrative. And and I guess you could be you could think of the woman who is in the abusive relationship as being sort of fooled by that narrative or being negatively impacted by that narrative where, you know, maybe a different narrative would have a positive impact. Yeah, 100%. And I think this kind of gets to this idea of like expectations as well. I mean, in, and, and with regards to mental health, you know, so much of our mental health and especially whether we're feeling depressed or feeling good about ourselves has to do with the mismatch between our expectations and what we are seeing around us, our expectations for ourselves and what we're seeing that's happening with ourselves around, you know, what what we're doing on a day-to-day basis. And I think that expectation setting is so much about the narrative, right? Less about the actual things that are happening, but more about the expectation of what we think should be happening. And somehow if you can, recast that narrative it can be helpful in a variety of ways i yeah i would agree um i don't know if it's necessarily if it's necessarily the same thing as narrative i mean you could i think it's a simpler description to talk about it as expectations what what's the difference there you're just thinking because expectations don't necessarily have this like uh trajectory that this rising and falling trajectory over time. And they're, they're more like a somewhat more punctate or random constellation of stochastic events. Is that kind of what you're thinking there? Uh, I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) I thought it was a powerful question, Joe. I was going to ask the same question to Rolf. So I'm glad you you raised it. Uh, Cool. Cool. Well, I mean, I think there's, yeah. Go ahead. One of the things I was going to say, too, is this, um, you know, there's something that is so uniquely satisfying about a movie or a book. And I'm so I'm I'm relentlessly curious about what is it about that? You know, my uh, wife just finished reading uh, Harry Potter three to my son. They just literally today just finished, you know, the last page and that last page of a book feeling when things are really wrapping up. it just, it always gives me chills. And I think for a lot of people, it's that last scene in the movie, right? Where the music starts to play and those final thoughts are shared and people kind of walk off. And there's something about the shape of, of a book and the shape of a movie, which is a circle, right? So many times that the reason it feels satisfying is that the end ties back to the beginning. And I think of life as really is not a circle, but we I think we we look for circular shapes in our lives, things that feel like meaningful signs or coincidences and that, that kind of help tie that notion of who we were as children to who we are as adults, right? We're always looking for those callbacks. And that's that's what makes fiction so satisfying is these references that kind of echo across the, the work. And I think in life, maybe it's not a full narrative arc, but that we do love that notion of things that were meant to be, right? Or early indications of a of a future aptitude. And 
So maybe it's just storytelling elements that people are using, even if they're not using the full one, just to kind of make life, which feels oftentimes chaotic and overwhelming, just feel more mapped to to art and to the sense of something that means something and, and makes sense. So an analog to this, I guess, is in um, split brain patients, where uh, at least some researchers have, have suggested that one hemisphere is the interpreter. So if you, if you take a split brain patient, so this is someone who's had their cerebral hemispheres um, split down the middle so that what you show to the left field of space is, is perceived by the right hemisphere of the brain. What you see in the right field of space is perceived by the left hemisphere of the brain. So someone in that situation that has an image flashed to their right hemisphere, which is their non-speaking hemisphere, they can't make they can't put into words what it is, but um, the left hemisphere can make a story about why they're doing something. So a classic example of this is um, uh, showing an image to uh, what is it? They show an image to the right hemisphere, which can't express itself in language, but it's a humorous image. So the person laughs. And then when you, when you ask the person, well, why did you laugh at that? Um, and they say, oh, you're just a cut up, you know, you're, you're just a funny guy, you know? So, I mean, the idea is that the brain is constantly always filling in the gaps, um, and trying to, trying to perceive those patterns so that they can act on uh, a whole entire pattern and constructing a narrative is, is a way of doing that, I guess. So in a, in a way, I mean, the brain is a pattern perceiving machine and, you know, it, it is constructing a narrative in the sense that it's, uh, that it's trying to anticipate the future. It's trying to, um, put everything into a, a cohesive whole. Um, but I guess the question for me is does actual real life seem like it's experienced that way or is it just maybe uh, partially an artifact of of what my brain's struggling to do yeah wow yeah i i think this makes me kind of think about that notion of kind of attention and what we pay attention to and i think in day-to-day -day life right like our brains have really evolved to be this amazing have it's almost like a this idea of like saving RAM uh, mm -hmm. usage on a computer, right? Like we we kind of bundle and batch process things. And once we walk down our street enough times, we just stop noticing it, right? It's kind of on autopilot. Mm -hmm. And that seems like the opposite of meaning making and narrative making. And I think that's really is the way we go through our lives is ignoring as much as possible, mm -hmm. which is like, yeah. that's the, the worst way to make a story. You There's no details. You're missing everything. All that, the only thing that's in your head is this probably sense of I'm late or um, I'm hungry or something, right? That's not a great story. Right, right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's, that's a very boring story. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I, I agree. I mean, I think, yeah, it, it, it's interesting how that, you know, what you're paying attention to, what you find important, I think, uh, you know, is really just central to, you know, how the, the story that you tell about yourself and, and what you think, the story you're telling about others as well, like what, what you... Uh, you know, how you make meaning of, of what other people are doing too. So I think we're uh, getting towards the end of this conversation. It feels like one of the things that uh, Chris, that we always, yeah. Huh? Are you doing the robo apocalypse question or? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. 
Okay. Yeah. Ah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. So one, one of the things that we always do uh, on this, well, not always. Usually. One, one of the things that we try to do on the show is to tie everything back to the robo-apocalypse. So how, I think, I think you've already started down this road a little bit, Chris. I mean, but how do you think this conversation and, and this topic relates to uh, how robots end up taking over the world <laughs> and also we... <laughs> and also in what sense is nano is nanorimo personally responsible for accelerating the that's right. apocalypse yeah this is great it's so funny too that this is the third mention of apocalypse and uh, apocalyptic lifestyles that we've already we've had so <laughs> i'm still trying to think of my value in the in the post-apocalyptic i know world, what's yeah. it going to be what what are you going to offer rolf i don't know i'm not sure you can think about it um yeah, I mean, NaNoWriMo is obviously a harbinger of the robo-apocalypse in so many ways, and it's almost hard for me to pick the the top one. Um, I think something that comes to mind is, um, you know, we there there is this kind of a, a sense, an emerging sense of that, uh, and this is this interesting field of study. I don't know if you've talked to anybody who does this, but they, they use machine learning to analyze the kind of core structure of, um, they'll look at like, tens of thousands of, of books. And then they'll kind of try to analyze the sort of like the valences of story of kind of ups and downs. And um, in, in doing this, they kind of are trying to unlock what is the code of, of a great story. And I, I think that we I just got an email from a professor who is studying this, who was wondering if maybe he could have access to these, you know, the 300,000 manuscripts that get started every year in National Novel Writing Month to run this algorithm or whatever it is over them. And I had to tell him that, in fact, people don't really, all they do is kind of upload a version of their manuscript that gets deleted immediately. We don't keep it. We just count it. But I do think that this is eventually these teams in that same kind of Jurassic Park style way will crack that code, right? They will figure out it's like 17 thousand moves and there are these little micro moves and if you can do that dance exactly correctly it's like the unlocking this like nintendo super mario cheat code um and i think robots will get a hold of that and ultimately use it to destroy the human race well i Perfect. think that's good but i have i have another possible scenario good good i'm really ready well so i mean how many people how about how many words did you say are being produced per year o over a billion now Okay, so that's a lot of inventiveness, and um, it's a lot of great exploring of different potential worlds, too. And somewhere in those billion year words per year is probably a description of how to destroy the world that's relatively accurate. So I think, I, I think NaNoWriMo is just writing up blueprints on how to bring the robo-apocalypse around. The more yeah, th the more thinking people are doing, the more likely it's just going to all all come to a bad end. Yeah, I like it, Joe. What do you got? Yeah, I was along the same lines, basically thinking that one of these novels would just actually contain the 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 correct description of like how to build the robot that that ultimately you know gains consciousness and you know makes other more powerful robots that then you know go on to you know take over the world, basically. Yeah. Well, that's a beautiful thing. It's right. There's it's one creative writing nonprofit, but many paths to ending the world. That's always <laughs> one of the kind of heartwarming things about National Novel Writing Month. That's right. That's right. Well, Chris, thank you so much for being on the show. Really appreciate it. 
This was fun. I could do this every day. Can we do this every day? We can.